So hello, uh, today I'm talking to Tamiko Thiel, who is a digital artist. Tamiko started a career in technology, uh, studying at Stanford University before moving to MIT, which led to a role as a lead product designer engineer on the, uh, the Connection Machines 1 and 2, two of the earliest supercomputers, and represented an attempt to create computers based on the, the structure of the human brain. For those Fairly August beginnings, Tamiko took the step of leaving technology to study art in Munich, in Germany, where she currently resides. Since then, Tamiko has worked as a digital and new media artist, continues to work at the forefront of the boundary between art and technology. Uh, her current shows blend a concern with politics, the environment, and the uses and abuses of AI at present. For instance, Deepfake, Lend Me Your Face, Go Fake Yourself project, uh, allows people to upload an image of them, their face which is then turned by deepfake technology into mimicking the mannerisms of various prominent people. While Sponge Trash Takeover allows participants to get a feel for the current state of the oceans as levels of plastics and human waste continue to build up. Um, you can find out more about Tomiko at tomikothiel.com. Okay, Tomiko, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. You've got quite a long CV and quite a lot of really interesting and fascinating things in there. And I wonder if you could just maybe give a, a couple of minutes just framing your, your career so far, as it were, in terms of... We talked a bit about your current shows, and we, you talked to with Agora last week about your current shows. Just maybe give me a very quick overview, a couple of achievements that you feel really you consider to be your, your, your highlights. Thank you. As you pointed out, I uh, had a bachelor's from uh, Stanford University, and that was in the Stanford product design program. And that was really one of the first programs in the U.S. that allowed you to combine engineering, art, and design. And when I went to MIT, first my impulse for my graduate studies was to want to delve more into technology. But then I happened to stumble over the courses that became the Media Lab after I graduated. The Media Lab was only set up really the, the year after I graduated. And it was really just an epiphany when I saw these courses that this is what I wanted to do. And I had grown up with influences of engineering and design and art from my parents. My father uh, was first a naval architect and then designing ships, ship hulls. And then when he was at MIT, got seduced into going into architecture. And then my mother is a Japanese art specialist. It was really this, this conjunction of the two that really spoke to me. And I think you can see that in the design of the connection machine. As you mentioned, the first was a commercial supercomputer designed to mimic the human brain, where my role was really to find a form to express why this machine was so different. And then I went to art school, which was at that point in Germany, very, um, shall we say, <laughs> Germany was very anti-technology uh, for some very good reasons, uh, socially and culturally and politically. But uh, it also meant that my whole interest in technology was considered very suspect by my fellow art students. But still, I got it. I ended up uh, working in video, which was encouraged by the one professor at the academy who, who really had that in his class. And then I found as I started moving into media art that I really felt like my engineering and design background was really forming the way I, I looked at wanting to use technology to try and form it into a medium that could really help express the dreams, the fantasies, the desires of human beings. So actually a lot of the media art that was done at that time, especially in the 80s, early 90s, uh, was almost universally coming out of conceptual art, also looking at the way that the technology was used in society. On the other hand, as a technologist, I was very comfortable with the fact that technology is used in society and can change the way that society is formed, but I wanted to help direct it 
in a way that would not only see the technology being used in commerce in the military, which is always a very strong part of technological development because they tend to have the money to fund the research, for instance, of supercomputers, for instance, of AI, but also being able to, in my own work, say this is what technology can really give us to make us more human and to make the technology more human. So I think that is perhaps one way that my work has often differed from other artists who might be working on somewhat similar fields at the time, that I was not so much focused on looking at the technology itself, but rather at using the technology to express cultural and individual desires and dreams and visions of a positive future that could also embrace technology in a positive future and not only in a negative future. But then when I see, when I see problems as seem to really be very evident right now with climate change and with rapid deployment of artificial intelligence in ways that are not being questioned strongly enough by the institutions that are implementing them and making them a part of society, then I also feel that it's necessary to use art as a platform to reach more people who might not read the scientific papers, who might not even read the daily papers in detail, where there is a lot of journalistic criticism of what the technology could do to the society in a negative way, but might be open to a essential experience, a sensory experience experience something that addresses them more emotionally to give them some sort of insight into how these technologies might be affecting the world. And that's where I think I end up spending most of my time when I'm making art. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. There's a lot. It sounds like you were very much going against the flow. For me, growing up in the 80s is all about how humans were becoming more robot-like. And you mm -hmm. made me think of Kraftwerk talking about Germany. I never right. saw a kind of anti-tech in Germany. For the British, the Germans are the masters of technology. Yeah. And well, that's perhaps not the best way of describing it. But Kraftwerk were about becoming more robotic. And what you're seeing is right. what the human technology in a way. That Very much. Maybe the idea that humans are slightly being lost in the technology and your role as an artist is to to try and recapture that sense of humanity. Yes, and, and use technology to help recapture what's important to us about our humanity. Just going back, you talked about how you got into video art firstly, and I was really interested. So did you have any inspirations then? Were your inspiration video artists? I've been looking at um, people like Dara Birnbaum and Mikkel Rona, who I think were video artists, up-and-coming female video artists in the in the 70s or 80s. I would say that, not surprisingly, Bill Viola was a huge influence. And his earlier videos were very conceptual, but they transited fairly quickly to really addressing spirituality, being very sensual, very, very much about the human body, the human condition. And that was also very different from, like I said, the very sort of techno-criticism focus of video at the time, which which was more about surveillance and about TV and about being a, a slave to the screen. So Bill Viola was clearly one who was investigating the, the sensuality of the medium and how this technological medium could be used to make stunning images that address the human condition. So that was very much an impetus. And then I think even before I got to know Bill Viola's work, I remember very strongly when I was in Boston. I was either at MIT or I was in the Thinking Machines MIT startup crowd. Thinking Machines is the company that was building the connection machine. And I saw the work of Bill Seaman, who created this piece called The Water Catalog. And all it was scenes of water, one after another, in different ways. There was no voiceover. I believe there was music, but it was just so visual and so sensual. It was about the image. It was about the moving image. And it was not about, oh, how horrible it is that we're spending all of our time watching moving images on screens. It was about, oh my God, look at these beautiful images of nature and the 
medium for me was transparent. It was enabling me to see his view of nature in a way that I hadn't seen and that you wouldn't accept from film because film was so expensive to do and then it had to be shown in a theater or something. But you could do it with video and he was doing it with video. It's interesting you mentioned because water seems to be a recurring theme in your work. Um, I really don't know why, <laughs> but I seem to have gotten um, on this rag about water and the oceans. And I have to say, I, it's an incredibly sensuous thing. And a lot of the people working on themes of the oceans are high sea sailors or whatever. I get sponge trash takeover. I found very powerful, actually, and quite upsetting in some ways, because you can tell people that the oceans are filling with plastic and they just it's just words going in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I felt watching that was, it's from a fish's eye view and or an aquatic mm-hmm. animal's eye view, and you see all of the masks and you see all of the things, and it's much more powerful than just telling people. That's <laughs> what I think is the, can be the power of art, and I have to say that the the exterior, shall we say, of Sponge Space Takeover was created by Cyan Planet. It's a 360 degree video that they took underwater, fishes feeding at a reef, and then they had a sponge in terms of scale for a human when you go into the Mozilla Hubs VR world is a several stories tall building. And of course, in reality, they're much smaller than a human body. But that was built as a online meeting space for the XR Hub Bavaria, and they said, would you like to do something in this space, show videos of your work or something? And I said, can I do an intervention? Can I put some of my 3D content in your 3D world? And that was the plastic bottles and the discarded coronavirus blue gloves and the blue masks that as soon as the virus hit here, you started seeing them lying all over the sidewalks. And so that piece is very much a, a collaboration. And, and Cyan Planet is one of the, these, the two founders, especially they're incredible sailors and divers, and they do all the things that I should be doing and not. It was really nice to have that collaboration where I could make use of this incredibly peaceful atmosphere they created in sponge space and then give it my diabolical twist of oh yeah and it's filling up with plastic and it's all stuff that we're you know using right now and tossing away on that it's an interesting point because your work whilst digital also comes out into the real world in different ways doesn't it in a different way to some digital artists which i think are very much within the digital realm because that presents challenges and opportunities for you as well does it part of it was that after i got into virtual reality in the mid 90s i spent 15 years building only three pieces each piece took five years of research, of fundraising, then of production, and then debugging, and then also showing it around. And that was 15 years in which all of my work had to be shown in very dark rooms because the projectors were weak. And so you needed pretty much a a room without light in order to get a really strong projection image that was around nine feet tall by 12 feet wide or three meters tall by four meters wide. I spent about 15 years of my life creating for darkened rooms and was really getting worn down by it, I would have to say, especially if the sun is shining outside and I'm sitting there going, oh, I have to show it as as this large projection in a dark room. And then uh, just through one of the many lucky coincidences that I have been privy to in my life, a friend of mine, uh, Mark Squarek from New York, sent me an email and said, hey, send me some 3D content and I'll put it up in the Museum of Modern Art in New York next week. This was in October. So it was really a week away from their intervention on October 9th. And I didn't realize that augmented reality had come to the point where you could really do this with smartphones. You could say, okay, I'll just place my artworks in using GPS 
at the GPS of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And as long as they let me use my phone inside of the building, then I can view all the artworks that I had placed here inside. So he and Sander Wienhof did this flash mob where I wasn't able to fly because it was only a week's notice. But a lot of friends of theirs were there, and so they all gathered and placed their artworks there with augmented reality using GPS. And I made this piece called Art Critic Face Matrix, which was really a, a matrix of these abstracted faces of mine that seemed to be screaming with showing the whites of their eyes and saying, what? This can't be art. This will never be art. I didn't have audio at that point. I, I need to redo the piece with audio now. But in 2010, it was really just barely working on smartphones. And then we were off and running. And that was a point when I realized that the three virtual reality artworks that I had done in the last 15 years were all about site-specific experiences. So the first one at the Manzanar incarceration camp in Eastern California, where in, in that one camp, there were 10,000 Japanese Americans imprisoned for the duration of the Second World War. In the next piece, The Travels of Mariko Horo, it's a fantasy sort of collision between Asian Buddhist way of seeing the world and a, a Christian way of seeing the world. And then the uh, Ritual Lamaua reconstructing the wall, um, the Berlin Wall, where we uh, really redid a linear kilometer of the Berlin Wall and the Death Strip between the, the East and West Wall and the neighborhoods adjourning it. So those were all very site-specific works. The Travels of Mariko Horo was situated, so to speak, in Venice, which stood in for the entire West. And a lot of the time that it took to produce these works was because first I had to reproduce enough of the site to, to make it read well for people who, for instance, might never have seen any of these locations. Mm -hmm. And only then could I start playing around in a very surrealistic manner with the site and with what had happened at that site. Whereas with augmented reality, you go to the site and the site has that physicality and has also, if you know anything about it, it has those layers of history. And so the role of the augmented reality is, so to speak, very light. It's calling up those stories. It's pointing out those stories, framing the site and enhancing it with visual aspects of other hidden layers that you might not know about even if you know that physical place. So it was an immediate jump. It was an immediate bridge. And it meant that I could do it outside. I could travel to places and do the work. And I also didn't need the permission of body or institution or person who invited me. So for instance, the next year, 2011, I led our intervention into the Venice Biennial. And we all want excuses to go to Venice anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a great place to have a Biennial, isn't it? So organized, we had an artist group, manifest.ar, and I organized a intervention, curated the pieces and said, guys, we've got to address this site. The works have to be site-specific. Even if you're taking a piece that already exists, you've got to modify it for the site. And I think we created very deep works, all eight of us, that really address the site and the history of that site. And that can really go into history as significant augmented reality artworks from the beginning of the time that it was possible to use this technology on mobile devices. I know you, you talked in the Agoa talk about the importance of context. I think what you're saying is that the context is really important for both the artwork and the, the consumer of that artwork. Very much. If you're creating a moment in time and space where the people who come, whether they're there by accident or whether they've gone there by design, will have a moment of engaging with your ideas, basically, through augmented reality. It's more profound, more accessible. And also, of course, the whole physical dimension of being at the site and feeling the 
the sun or the rain, the winds, the smells, the people going by. Are you standing in traffic? Are you in the middle of an open field? There's a whole dimension of physicality that feeds into the piece. And a theorist and artist, Rio Wright from Australia, writes very beautifully of this. And she contacted myself and some other of the Manifest.ar artists. And when she was writing an article that was referencing our, our work, and she talks about concept of assemblage. And I hadn't really heard much about that concept with respect to augmented reality, but I think it, she really came up with this concept herself in, in writing her thesis, but it spoke immediately to things that, that I tried to talk about but didn't quite have the vocabulary, that the artwork is not just it's an image on my smartphone. It's my body standing at that site, my movements as I use that smartphone, not as a tiny screen, but as a window into a much larger space, a space that's all around me, because I always make my artworks so that they're installations that surround you in 360 degrees. And in order to see the artwork, you can't just pick it up, look at it and say, okay, I've seen it, because you'll see just a small fraction of the entire piece. You have to move around, you have to look at it, it's around you, it's above you, it's below you, it's almost inevitably behind you because the geolocative AR floats around a lot. And so you are using not only your visual sense, but very definitely your kinesthetic and proprioceptive senses to look at something that's larger than you, that's more extensive than the reach of, of your body. So you're measuring it with your body. And she talked about the artwork is the entire assemblage, the software, the hardware, the site, the person and the person's movements and the person's perceptions and how they move in order to perceive. And this is the entire artwork. It's not just the image on your tiny smartphone screen. It's participatory then. It's very it's much so. Away from the traditions of fine art, hasn't it? In very different media and a very different approach to what art is and how art is, is presented and consumed. Does it make you, it's an interesting point, thinking of digital art more broadly, is there a vulnerability that comes from being a digital artist? Because it's not about just putting your painting out there and then leaving it as it were to be viewed you're actually much more engaged in the whole process of creating the art you have to think a lot about how it will be perceived we have thousands and thousands of years of uh, perceiving two-dimensional art and uh, for that matter also three-dimensional art in terms of sculpture where it's a, a fixed object and you're circling around it so in that sense whether it's a ikebana flower arrangement or whether it's a monument to someone sitting on a horse in the middle of a city you do move around sculpture and you do see it from different sides but it's definitely a different layer when you cannot see it in its entirety all at once and you have to explore it, you have to search it out. Installation art is always like that. Also, if you build a physical installation inside of a museum space, you can't just look through the doorway at that installation and say, okay, I've seen it. And, and go on. You have to go in there. You have to walk around. You have to you focus in on things. You look at the bigger picture. But with the AR in particular, but also, frankly, with my large VR worlds, which Mariko Horo had a couple different, three different hells and a couple different heavens, you have to explore. Maybe, And it's this exploratory aspect that means also that I, as an artist, have to think about how people might explore it or might need to explore it, might want to explore it, or might not realize that they did have to explore it. And a certain amount that you just have to say, some people will not be interested enough to put in the time 
and other people will. So I've seen some people walk up to the joystick of one of my exhibits and push it back and forth, and then they walk away. And I've seen other people come up to that same joystick in the same place with the same content and spend an hour with it. And you have to be able to let that go and realize that you won't get everybody. But I try, and this is, I think really does come from my design background that I feel like I have a responsibility to try and seduce the viewer into wanting to spend some time and some energy investigating this work in order to understand it. And that's a really interesting idea. You, you can't make people view art, can you? You have to give them a reason to view. I mean, thinking of that, thinking of digital arts, where, where do you see the uh, travels of Mariko Horo? Apologies, if I was to some extent you were building on other, on other people's ideas and meshing and synthesizing ideas from more traditional forms of art. Mm -hmm. Where do you see how is digital art positioned? Is it an extension of earlier forms of art, or is it qualitatively different and a new form of art? How, how do you see? Where digital art is positioned? Well, there's, of course, a lot of very different types of digital art, but I think it's impossible for us to create something that's totally new. And this is actually uh, something that I might have argued about that statement before doing the travels of Mariko Horo, because as you mentioned, it was very much an investigation into how did Western artists see Asians, specifically Japanese, before they could actually travel over there and meet them, and vice versa. How did Japanese artists perceive Westerners before they could travel and meet them? And not just uh, before the technology was there to travel, but remember that also Japan, when they realized that the Europeans, and specifically the Catholic missionaries, were colonizing South America, colonizing the Philippines, trying to colonize China, they, the shogun, the ruler of Japan at the time, shut down the country, massacred anyone who would not uh, renounce their Christianity, and locked the doors on the country for 200 years. And during that time, however, there were a small number of Japanese artists who were fascinated by this unattainable West. And remember, for Japan, the West starts in Korea and goes all the way to the West Coast of the USA. So that's all West of Japan. Nation, isn't it? It's a big space to fill. And, and I found really fascinating examples from both from Western artists visualizing the Asian other and Asian artists visualizing the Western other. And in all cases, they were able to take a small step from that which they knew into the direction of the unknown, but a relatively small step. And, uh, big step that would actually have brought them close to the reality of the other was pretty much impossible. So seriously, after doing that piece, I frankly think that we are capable of extending what we already know, but doing huge leaps into the future is very difficult. If we look at different cultures, if we look at fantasies, science fictions, stories where people have tried to think of the most weirdest thing they can think of, then, you know, those are all like steps forward. Of course, I grew up watching Star Trek and there was, there were these like devices that they spoke into <laughs> and they said, beam me up, Scotty, so they could communicate from this little device that they had in their hand with their starship. And we're doing that in many ways. And of course, the fact that all of these things that were fantasized in these films have become reality is partially because uh, along some part of the way, the designers have been going like, yeah, when I was a kid, I always wanted to have that device. And you know what? I think we can do it now. And actually, that's another point I need to mention with the connection machine that the industrial designers who worked with me on the machine, Gordon Bruce and Al Hawthorne, they actually worked 
on initial concepts for Stanley Kubrick's film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. And they also worked for real concepts, real designs for the space lab. They didn't have a background in artificial intelligence, but they did have this background working with science fiction, which I think also very much also fed into how we were able to uh, make the machine look as really an object from a future that science fiction was trying to imagine. Uh, but only partly imagine, as you say, go back a few hundred years to feudal Japan, their imagination of what the West was was based on only a tiny bit of fact and a lot of imagination. Right. Like the future, isn't it? We make our future slightly, but it's right. very hard to really imagine what it's going to be like even 50 or 60 years from now, the, the rate that the technology is progressing. And actually thinking of AI and things like that, it's a... Uh, question for, for this podcast as such but it's hard to imagine what's going to be next and whether it's going to be the things that we're dealing with at the moment like virtual reality or ai or if it's going to be something's going to broadside us that's blank side us it's completely different a whole new form of technology I, I, I don't know if you have any feelings about that there's amazing progress being done in all fields of science and discovering almost every day in, in the newspapers that microbes that are 100 million years old have been essentially revived in, in laboratories. <laughs> so they're starting to grow and develop. And, and then, of course, looking at the Mars landing and understanding that microbes can survive 100 million years. These are microbes that need oxygen, and they were in the earth for so long, but there was apparently enough molecular oxygen that they could survive. That makes the possibility of finding something similar on Mars, which used to have water in to much more extent than it does now. We can find potentially microbes there also. We can find life, our closest planet. It's not the sort of life that we expected when we visualized the little green men on Mars, but that's how life started here also. That's just one tiny example, but I just watched the destruction of the environment. I just saw a post from a Facebook friend that he flew over Greenland just recently. It's the middle of winter. Greenland's supposed to be underneath ice and snow. And he was saying bare, black ground in the middle of winter in Greenland. And we know that in the summer, not only is the Arctic not just staying frozen, but there are often temperatures in the Arctic Circle of 38 degrees Celsius, that's above body temperature, and that's around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, at times when the temperature in summer in, say, the continental U.S. all of a sudden plunges towards freezing because that global warming is heating the Arctic faster than other parts of the globe, and that's forcing the, the jet stream to bring the Arctic air that's supposed to be up there keeping it frozen down to more temperate climates. So I think the question is really, what is going to be faster? Our ability to invent ourselves out of the mess we've gotten us in, or the fact that it's just, we're in runaway greenhouse. And at some point that will kill enough of our environment so that staying alive will be a lot of work. And that's where all of our energy will have to go to, not to realizing some wonderful dreams and fantasies, but just can I stay cool enough to survive the day? Can I stay warm enough to survive the day? Can I get enough nutrition from the food that still can grow on this planet in order to sustain me for another day? Certainly something that awareness of these things, I think, has been accelerated greatly, sometimes for bad reasons as well. And I mm -hmm. feel some of the events in America over the last few years have hopefully actually raised awareness rather than reduced our awareness of these issues. Just moving on to a parallel track a little bit, because that issue we could talk about all day, really, and we should all be talking about it most of the time. Sorry to say, that's, that's how big it is. 
just a little bit, you talked a bit about the responsibility of, of the artist earlier. You're an artist, you're also a female artist, a female mm-hmm. digital artist, a few lots of different kinds of art that you're involved in. Do you mm-hmm. see that as a responsibility at all? And how do you feel positioned as a, obviously from a goller's perspective, it's the idea is to raise the profile of female digital artists. Mm-hmm. But how do you see yourself positioned there? From the very beginning of starting out as a physics major when I was an undergraduate in 1974, two years after Stanford allowed men and women to live in the same building for the first time, it was, I think, a a lot of universities in the U.S., it was really only around in the early 70s that men and women really came into a more, more equal footing at elite universities all over the country. And as a physics student, my advisor was a physicist, a high-energy physicist at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. He gave me a, a job working there as a student. And I found out that from things people told me that he was known for having a very good eye for doppling up freshman students who were talented in some way. And it turns out that with me, he had problems because and maybe this was part of the problem. One of my best girlfriends was also a declared physics major, and she was just so much better than I was. She, When she talked about mathematical formulas, for her, it was really, it, it had a physical component. It went up and then it went down. And for me, they were numbers on a page that I was manipulating. And so I saw from this girlfriend of mine, who was just so much better than me, that I wasn't going to become a really good physicist. So I said, I think I need to go and look at something else. And my advisor said, literally, he said, you are letting the women of the world down. You have the ability to become a physicist and show the world that women can also become physicists. And I know because I have a good track record at finding these people, finding these students. <laughs> but she's so much better than I am. So in a really weird way, from the very beginning of my university experience, I've been on the one side confronted by people who have mentored me, who have said, you have the talent to do something in this field of science or in this field of engineering. And then I keep on going, well, but I see other women who are so much better than me. Can't I like keep on looking until I find something where I feel like this is the right field for me? And I actually then did that when I finally left physics. It was because I had discovered the product design program. And as I said, this was combining engineering, art, and design. And this was just a couple of weeks before the new quarter, the new academic year was supposed to start. And basically, I had missed the deadlines for all the classes I need to take in order to start as a sophomore with the classes in order to graduate in time. And I got an appointment with the head of the department, and I said, I know you've got long waiting lists for this class, and I know it's like starting in a couple of days and you've never seen me before, but I am asking you to put me ahead of everyone on the waiting list because I think I'm the right person for this program. And he did. And he mentored me in that program, and and I kept on saying, oh, but that this person is better at drawing, and this person is better at designing, and I didn't quite understand what he saw in me, but he mentored me and thought that there was something there that was worth supporting. And when I went from my first professional job to Hewlett-Packard, my boss also mentored me there and and at some point told me, we rank the entire lab and, and you're in, you've got the highest level for the fact that you've only been here a year. So there have been all of these people, a lot of men, a lot of women who have mentored me. And then, then I left Hewlett Packard and saying, "There's some. I want something different. I want something more." I went to MIT. Professor took me into his class and gave me a research assistant position in the biotech lab. And 
I graduated, but then I went to the MIT startup Thinking Machines. So I didn't do anything in biotech. And then I did the connection machine design. And when that design was finished, I said, you know what? I've spent two years thinking about what are the societal, cultural, personal, scientific reasons, fantasies, dreams, hopes that we are projecting into this machine. And how can I express that in some sort of visual form and some sort of concrete form that is still usable? And you know what? I want to keep on doing that. And I think the only way I can keep on doing that is by becoming an artist. Really interesting. So you didn't decide to become an artist per se. Becoming an artist was the best way for you to express what it was you wanted to express. And I think that if... I was born 20, 30 years later than I was born, then I probably would have gone directly into some combination of media art and maybe AI and media art informatics. But that wasn't available when I was going through the system. So I had to find my way sort of step by step. And each time I felt like I was betraying the opportunities that were being given to me as a woman. And it wasn't just my freshman advisor saying, essentially, I mentored you, I'm giving you this opportunity, and you are betraying womanhood by not taking that opportunity to show that, yes, women can do physics or women can do engineering or whatever. I would say each step that I've taken partially has been saying, you know what, I see other women who are better at this than I am. And I'm going to keep on going until I find something that possesses me 100% and where I think the combination of who I'm at and where I've been and what I can do and what I want to do is right for me. So rather than approaching feminist themes, there are, I am a feminist and have always been a feminist. And I claim that there are lots of feminist aspects to my work. But part of that aspect of being a feminist was, if I say so, having the courage to say, I will do what I want instead of what some other people or society expects of me. Because that, I think, is the true opportunity that not only women, but any human being should have, is to be able to express their full potential and not have society or their family or their most dearest loved one tell them what they have to do. So, in a way, it, it is a, it's a slightly different perspective in that what you're saying, I think, is that being a woman hasn't presented barriers particularly to either your career as a technologist or as an artist, but rather it's presented something of a burden because you're expected to be a role model for women more generally that hasn't necessarily fitted with, with actually what you wanted to do as a thinking, creative person. And I wouldn't use the word burden because it's been a it's been the opposite. It's been it's been an immense privilege. And being mentored by all these people has been an immense privilege. And I look at some girl working in the field who's most likely course of life is if she lives to adulthood, uh, she'll have God knows how many kids before she reaches what we consider to be adulthood. And she'll always be under the control of someone else. And she might have the same ability that I have, but she will never be able to, to live her, her life fully. And why was my consciousness born into this body and this situation rather than into her body and her situation. I don't know. You don't know. No one knows. But it's a question we can never answer. But then even the people in the field might look at somebody else in the field a bit further along and ask themselves the same question. And just on that on the, the issue, how about emerging female digital artists? So how what's your relationship with the, the kind of up and coming digital artists? And what how do you, do you feel? So do you do you feel a sense of mentorship? Do you feel a responsibility to encourage female digital artists and help them overcome some of the barriers that they might face? 
Yes, definitely. But I'm going to also um, speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We are all incredibly competitive. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the energy to do what we do. And so it's a total mixture and not only with women, but with men or whoever else in between. We all put immense amounts of uh, energy into our own work. We're totally competitive and see someone else doing something and go, oh my God, I've always wanted to do that. Now I can't because they did it first. And, or, oh my God, they're doing something so much better than I could. Or, oh my God, they're doing really lousy, but they're getting attention for it that I should get for doing it better. And, and so, so there's all the, there's all that part of it also, which I just want to say out loud, we all feel it. So it's not just you, it's all of us, we all feel it. And then, and then you have to sit there and say, there have been so many people who've helped me and so many people who have mentored me and so many people who have given me opportunities and that worked for me and so many people who have taught me if i can give back a little bit of that then it's part of the karmic cycle <laughs> maybe i can overcome my feelings of jealousy and competitiveness damn it why didn't why didn't i get that why didn't i do that and and say okay but guess what the more you give the more comes back to me and the more i help other people the more they help me and the studies about how did this artist get to the top says most of the people who do get to the top do it because they knew other people who got to the top. So it's it's not you alone. It's this whole network that you're part of. And yes, the rising tide may drown us all, but it does also raise all boats in, in the process. Find people who you get along with. Find people who give and take and that you can give and uh, to and take from. Find people who you would feel really happy seeing them succeed. Help each other and and people who are really nasty and people who are just clearly in it just to try and get a get ahead. Ignore them even if they're powerful. Even if you think if I just can butter them up enough, they'll maybe give me something very valuable. You won't like it when it comes. So find people who are really good and who you really like and keep up those friendships. I've had so many amazing opportunities come seven years after I met someone. And I kept up with them, not because I thought, oh my God, this could be a good connection, but, but because I thought they were doing interesting things and I really liked them personally. And then be nice to secretaries because they know how everything works. They know where the bodies are buried. And they have in some ways no power and in some ways a lot of power. Don't just butter up the people who are in power because what that assistant curator who has to do all the work for the famous curator that they're the assistant for what are you going to say when they become the chief curator at the Guggenheim or the Tate Modern? If you like look down on them and say, oh, she's just something, what are you going to say when they're running the show? So anyone you meet, I guess my Aikido teacher, who is also my painting teacher, would say this on the mat. He said, all of us are masters in something, and we probably don't know what you are a master and are you or you but we're all masters in something so when we get on the mat let's treat all the other masters with the same dignity and respect that we want them to treat us because we're also masters in something god knows i don't always do it i can't always hold myself to this standard but i try and it's really amazing how other people are moving through their career and they're ambitious and they're trying to do things and get things done and just be good to people because maybe some of that will come back. That's great. You, you anticipated my question, actually, which have you got any advice for 
for people pursuing an artistic path. And I, I think you've really encapsulated that. We won't talk too much longer. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I think we can talk for hours. Um, just when you think of something when we talk about that, um, you said earlier about coincidences. Mm-hmm. I've just been reading Julia Cameron's book, which she's called The Artist's Way, uh-huh. and she talks about pursuing the artistic life isn't easy, but mm-hmm. when you have the courage to do it, coincidences will present themselves and you will get opportunities if you just keep trying and persevere. So that has the last kind of wrapping up question. Has that been your experience, would you say? I think I've said a number of times about having the the luck to be at the right place at the right time. And I think that's part of it. And part of it is also maybe having a sense of exploration that maybe this is not exactly the direction that you think would get you to some sort of goal that you have. But if it's really interesting, do it anyway. <laughs> and that's part of it. And you never know. When I left Thinking Machines at Boston and my whole MIT startup crowd to go to Germany, it was at a point when very few people in Germany had emails. Essentially, no one that I knew had emails. And this meant that the first 27 years of my life, I was 27 when I moved to Germany, the first 27 years of my life, all of a sudden did not count for anything. No one was interested in what I had done, what I had been involved in. It was, okay, so you're half Japanese. We're not really interested in Asians. You're doing technology. We think technology is evil. So there was some point where I could sit there and say, was this like really the wrong thing to do? Because I have to discard everything I've done for the last 27 years. And it took essentially 10 years until the mid-90s before those two worlds came together. And it's quite possible that they would have never come together if I had had been born like 10 or 20 years earlier. It wouldn't have come together so quickly. But the fact that I spent two years working on the connection machine, at some point, like... I could have asked myself, was that wasted time? The time I spent being engineer, was that wasted time? What if I had done art from the beginning when I went to college at age 17? I would be just so much further ahead. I would be in a different place. And then, of course, in 2015, when I realized there was a chance to get the connection machine into the Museum of Modern Art, I was going, oh, my God. This would be the closing of a circle in a way that I never expected would ever happen. And I've had a lot of dumb luck, but I, I think you're right. I think I'm not the only person who's had a lot of dumb luck. And it's something about how you live your life. And a lot of that is the freedom to live your life the way you want to. And not everyone has that. No, and it's not something I generally recommend to people because it's hard work. But for people who are doing or think they want to do it, I, it's always good to hear most people who have, have been on that path, who are on that path, I think. And I think the one thing is that I, I have to really underscore what you just said. It's a lot of work. And you do it only because in, at some level you have to, because you can't do anything but do it. And if you're sitting there going, oh, I would love to be an artist, and I'm so talented, but it's, I don't know, it's just like I'm not getting the breaks, and somehow my work is not being recognized, then you obviously don't have an inner need to make art. So why don't you do something where you get paid nicely, and you can have a good life, and you can spend the rest of your day saying, I could have been an artist, I just wasn't getting the recognition that I deserved, and so I left it. Well, thank you. That's really, that was really inspiring. And I think a lot of people listening to this podcast would be really interested to hear about your experience of being a working artist. When you visit art exhibitions, it's not always easy to get that engagement with the person who's creating yeah. it. So thank you very much, Tanika. And thank you for your questions, Peter Trainor. Thank you, Agora, for doing all of this work. It's wonderful.